You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Strange familiars? If you've seen something strange, like a cryptid, an alien, a ghost, anything paranormal, or if you know of a story you think we should cover, you can email us strangefamiliarspodcast at gmail.com. So tonight we have a very special episode of Strange Familiars. <laughs> Aren't they all special? They are all special. But, but this is very special. It's special to me. Okay. People have been clamoring for this episode. At least one person has been clamoring. That was for you, this right? <laughs> no, someone did ask for this. Like, when, when is the Where the Footprints End episode of Strange Familiars coming? So now you'll know where well, the footprints end. Actually, we didn't talk about that in the interview. Not exactly. This was so far, and I'm not just saying this because we live together. <laughs> Honestly, my favorite interview I've done for Where the Footprints End so I've far. I feel like it wasn't so much an interview about the book, but sort of like where we are with Bigfoot right now, generally. Yeah, I, and I Bigfoot feel that. zeitgeist. I mean, uh, there's definitely a lot of book in there, in the interview. But like the best interviews, I think the book was a springboard to further discussions. 
and I had a lot of fun doing it. It was a great conversation with you and Josh. I think I say at the beginning, this is what you get, meaning there was only one episode, but it's ended up being a two-parter. So we Yeah, we ended up talking for a long time. <laughs> we talked for so long, this will be a two-parter. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get to our wide-ranging interview, Where the Footprints End, High Strangeness and the Bigfoot Phenomenon, Volume 1, Folklore, a book written by myself, Timothy Renner, and Joshua Cutchin. You can find it on Amazon or get copies from our Etsy shop. Find links in the show notes at strangefamiliars.com. Yeah, so I think it's interesting that right as we start to think about recording, we get the first actual thunderstorm we've had in like two weeks. It's like beginning to riders on the storm. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the wild. It's the wild hunt. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Start the drumming. So ah. we are finally after Josh and I have been on. I think I think pretty much every other podcast that exists. Except Strange Familiars and Where Did the Road Go? We're finally going to do a talk about where the footprints end on Strange Familiars. I have to say, you just squeaked in as far as being invited on. It was only because someone else decided that they were going to cancel for the evening that you guys even made it onto the show tonight. <laughs> it's just just because... <laughs> only reason I have this slot is because I've shared a hotel room with the host. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Tonight, though, the host is is not Tim. I'm the host tonight. Yes, Allison is running the show. Allison is going to be interviewing Josh and I tonight. And I have to say, I'm a little scared. As well you should be. Even Bigfoot's quaking right now. We're finally going to sit down and talk about our book, Where the Footprints End, High Strangeness and the Bigfoot Phenomena, Volume 1. So I guess I will welcome... Josh and Allison to the show, and then Allison's going to take over with the questioning. Welcome, guys. Uh, it's, I'm happy to be here, always. Worst comes to worst, you can always count on me to show up whenever <laughs> you need me for Strange Familiars. I, we should have like a, a monthly check-in with Josh and see how grumpy he is. <laughs> My original plan for, for Where the Footprints End was, when it came out, I wanted to do a series of shows on Strange Familiars with you and I talking about various topics from the book. And then we just got so busy doing every other show that that just became impossible. At some point, I realized, like, well, we can't do that. So uh, tonight's what, what we're going to get. We'll see. Maybe we'll do another one down the road. But uh, Well, I mean, if for anybody who's listening, we've got you're going to be hearing about this book all the way through the end of October, probably because we still have a, a backlog of uh, even more interviews. Yeah. Yeah, I, I wasn't exaggerating when I said we, we were doing every podcast in the world. I think the term is whore. You guys are being whores. <laughs> whores for Bigfoot, which actually segues nicely into the beginning of my interview. <laughs> All right. Oh, I should mention before we start that Allison has a game of, rather, a Bigfoot bingo card that she has tonight. Now, she, we, she would not be interrupting the interview to let us know when we've hit a bingo. In other words, she's got some Bigfoot phrases on a bingo card. <laughs> That's amazing. At, at the end of the interview, she's going to let us know how many we've ticked off. 
and Perfect. I'm going to I'm going to attempt not to tick off any audience members, but I can't swear to that because I'm not sure how this is going to go. <laughs> the smooth voiced Tim will be replaced by my sort of awkward Bigfoot quandaries. Well, you're, you're free. Your free center centerpiece should be archetype. That should be your. your oh, free that, oh man! Oh, yep. There we go. <laughs> 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 Free space. Actually, I had a different center square, but I'm sure going to get it anyway. <laughs> I think I know what that is. I don't know. I don't know that you do. Okay. All right. This will probably not be as seamless as uh, the typical hosting duties, but I'm just going to start off with a pretty generic, I-, I wouldn't say softball, but just sort of a generic question that can lead you down a path. And that is, uh, why are we seeing Bigfoot now? Not me personally, but why are people seeing Bigfoot now? And this could be for whomever, whoever wants to go. I have kind of a working idea of that because, I mean, we are at the height of Bigfoot popularity, at least in the past, I'd say, probably two or three decades. Oh, yeah. So, so, yeah, I'm saying that it's in my lifetime, at least. And I think that I think that maybe, you know, looking at Bigfoot through an archetypal lens about being some sort of you know, hybrid of man in the wild and, you know, the ape. I, I think that it almost is sort of calling us back to being more in tune with our world, more in tune with the environment. I mean, if you look at what's happening in the world, even beyond what we're doing, it almost feels like, uh, you know, Gaia is is gearing up for a sneeze or something. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and I, I think that there might be some sort of loose correlation. It's an idea that I'm playing with that the reason that people are seeing so much Bigfoot is not only has the stigma been removed, but also maybe there actually is a ramp up in activity that's sort of somehow tied into bringing us back to a more natural focus. I mean, the number of, you know, victory gardens, so to speak, that have mm-hmm. cropped up in my neighborhood has skyrocketed and I see a lot of people going back more towards the earth. People are enjoying parks because there's nothing else to do. And I think that maybe the thing uh, that's sort of gaining momentum is, is sort of, I don't want to say back to earth cause it's a little bit cheesy, but the sort of return to our roots. And maybe that might have something to do with the manifestation of this particular phenomena. And do you think that perhaps it's a, just a return to the past generally in the same way that we were, for so long and sort of like uh, an alien epoch, if you want to say, and then we were looking forward, space was going to be the answer, the future was the answer, and now the future's so scary that we're just returning to our sort of base roots in the past. Well, I'm going to make a confession here that I don't think I've made anywhere, is that I find space boring, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is partially probably has something to do with the idea that I'm on, on sort of more of a fairy fate hypothesis than, a, than an extraterrestrial hypothesis with the UFO thing. So this makes me, you know, please as punch. But I think you're kind of right. There's been this sort of, it's been like this technological mm-hmm. juggernaut that we've been riding. And that's, of course, tied into, I mean, if you look at when UFOs took off, that was sort of the beginning of the atomic age and spacefaring and all those things were sort of in our, in the script that we're acting out. And I think maybe we're seeing sort of a change in acts, if you will. Well, I feel like it's kind of been a, a race starting with, you know, like, Darwinian theories between, you know, space, the future, and these missing link ideas and the lost apes and such that that maybe these two ideas have been racing parallel to one another the whole time, gaining and losing momentum. And maybe right now, Bigfoot's just winning. This dovetails so nicely with an idea that we really get into in volume two, but we talk about a lot as regards volume one. And this is the idea 
of the changing wild man archetype. Mm. So we put down this idea that Bigfoot is a archetype of the wild man. So we have always, we being humanity, we've always had these wild men that have lived in the wilderness next to us, all over the world. We can name off, you know, the, the Yeti in Asia and uh, the various, you know, Wadwos and, and various wild men throughout Europe, Bigfoot and Oma and Sasquatch and all of the, the different names for these wild men in the Americas, all over the world, wherever people have lived, wild men have lived in the wilderness next to them. But this wild man archetype seems to, at least in the West, change over time. And we start out with these medieval Wadwoses, and Allison, actually, in the room you're in, if you look across from you, there's a, a picture of Merlin, and that is actually Merlin in his wild man stage. Merlin was considered a wild man himself, and at least in one stage of his life. So these medieval wild men were very much wise and wizardly. They had magic and wisdom. And, you know, they kind of change over time. And they move uh, up until you get to the, the Victorian era. And the, the Bigfoot collections that I wrote, the Bigfoot in Pennsylvania and Bigfoot West Coast Wild Men, and there's more on the way, these collections of these Victorian articles that talk about the wild men of the time, Often, not always, but often in these articles, they're either portrayed as wearing clothes or even carrying like old rusty muskets. And in the past, I attributed that to the Victorian culture being kind of prudish. And perhaps, Which is a good idea. Yeah. It's a good idea. Yeah. yeah perhaps that they were clothing these wild men. In other words, they couldn't bear the idea of a naked wild man running around. In the woods, so the the editor or the reporter would just throw torn up clothes on this wild man. Oh, like 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 in Italian paintings where they go back in and paint over the cherubs. Yes, yeah. Exactly. Or, or 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 I'm thinking of like the way that, that people got aroused by the legs on furniture or something, right? Wasn't that a thing? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that was my original kind of hypothesis with that, but I've changed my thinking over time, and I now I think like. Yeah, maybe that's what people were seeing, and the reporting was was accurate. And we have this wild man that's wearing torn up clothes in the Victorian times and carrying, you know, non functional rusty muskets that he's still carrying around that muskets that won't fire. Even sometimes they talk about uh, seeing these creatures cooking over fires, or at least you know having a campfire. Until you get to the modern day, where Bigfoot is this very very wild creature, this very very wild wild man. It's very savage and, and animalistic. So it seems this wild man archetype is changing. It's going from the sophisticated to, to the more wild, less uh, like us, in other words, more closer to nature, I guess. Is that possibly because of the, the dangerous nature of, of a choice to become a wild man versus just being born a wild man? You know, that, that Victorian idea of, like, that could be possibly be a person who has chosen to go and live in the wild as opposed to to there absolutely was that idea which which is seems to be born of this and and um hasn't chosen that life has always been here in some respects i I mean there there absolutely was that idea in the victorian times even in the medieval times that you could choose to become a wild man you could you could leave society and become wild and i think you've noted this before at, at least in our private conversations allison that that it always is a dangerous thing to leave society. That mm-hmm. it was a, anyone who walks away from society is considered somewhat dangerous. And, and we even just 
a lot of the other things that are associated with Bigfoot are still seen as people who are sort of bordering on social mores, you know, people with long hair, people who are poor, you know, like these are, these are things that are still like dangerous concepts within our culture. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to step back to finish my archetype metaphor here and talk about, because we were talking about UFOs and technology, the UFO always stays ahead of us, technologically speaking, uh, from people were seeing blimps in airships. You know, we did our airship show before that, you know, we actually had functioning blimps in airships. And then they moved to these like art deco kind of flying saucers and so forth in the forties and fifties. And by the seventies, there are these very kind of star Wars, like giant black triangles that are flying through the skies. And until nowadays we have like plasma balls and like shape shifting light forms and all these things. So that the UFO gets more, technologically advanced the wild man seems to get more primitive and Mm -hmm. i do not know if that's a reaction to us moving away from nature in other words as mankind gets further away from nature more you know locked in our cities and locked in our suburbs interacting less with nature does our wild man become wilder does it by necessity does the wild man you know become wilder that our connection to the wild is it that much more removed from us you know it's wilder in a sense so that's an idea we play with, uh, like I said, a little bit more in volume two, but it's sort of uh, the subtext of volume one. Well, and I love that idea, and it's something that Chris mentioned on the last episode of Where Did the Road Go that you were on, which is this idea that you know maybe maybe this this transition is sort of echoed and encoded rather in Merlin, who you know lived his life backwards. <laughs> you know, I, I thought that was an interesting insight, um, yes. which which you've got to add to volume to your chapter in volume two where you talk about this. But, you know, it sort of leaves me wondering, like, if we become uber uh, technological, which, I mean, I think even as wild, uh, even as not wild, but as, you know, even as tamed as we've made the world, there's still plenty of room to pave over everything. If we pave over the earth, does Bigfoot literally turn into, like, a, a capuchin monkey? Or, like, what does he go to? Does he turn into a protoplasm of, <laughs> you know, how far does he regress? Right. Or we may, start or, to or, see or, things coming out of the ocean in very, very small steps. Right. <laughs> or, or, wow. or, or, or is... Well, well, yeah, yeah, fair enough. There's that ocean connection. Is that what you're thinking of, Tim? Yeah, yeah. There are mersquatches. Oh, here we go. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah, it's 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 not talked about that much, but there are a lot of strange similarities between mermaids and Bigfoot. You know, we think of mermaids as being or mer, merfolk, I guess I should say. And Bigfoot, uh, you th- we think of mermaids and merfolk and mermen as being sort of like, you know, completely human on the top and fish-like on the bottom. But oftentimes they were kind of a variation on the wild men archetype to the extent that wild men sometimes would dwell in pools of water um, and that some wild men would explicitly live in the water. I mean, that, that make a reference in volume one of the fact that, you know, you think of Grendel, which some Bigfoot researchers are all like, oh, Grendel was a Bigfoot. Well, <laughs> Grendel's mother lived, you know, in the water. But are they so, both sort you know, of I, I think that there's some, some merit to that. And it, so it's, it's interesting when you couple these older wild man concepts with current sightings of Bigfoot that are not only seen swimming very adeptly through the water, which is something that apes, generally speaking, don't do, um, but also, I mean, the, the vast distances that they can sometimes travel. And we have some examples in the book of people who see swamp apes in the Gulf of Mexico, and apparently it's a very common thing off of the southern coast of Alaska to see a Bigfoot out at sea. <laughs> um, and so it really is interesting that you see that older 
idea being reflected in Bigfoot, Bigfoot, you know, sightings, but you don't really hear about it that much. I mean, you'll find it in indigenous pockets and you'll find it, you talked about in regional sightings, but as far as the community, there's not a lot of acknowledgement. I don't think of that aspect of, of whatever this is. So are they supposed to be kind of like sirens sort of beckoning you towards the wild in the same way that mermaids would beckon sailors? Well, I mean, yeah, uh, kind of. I mean, it, it, there's a connection between the mermaid and the wild man also in just the, the way that they cry, but also the way that they cry um, more during storms. The idea of the wild, there's a there's an excerpt from an, an, uh, a medieval poem that I put in the book that's talking about the wild man who whose cry laments just the same way as the siren does during storms. Which is an interesting, interesting little connection there as well. As far as like luring sailors or luring people to their doom, I've never just heard about luring, that on the water. But, but or luring in, in, people to the wild. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's almost like it's the uh, the land. It's the it's the uh, all terrain version of the mermaid, I guess. Maybe <laughs> luring people into the woods as opposed to luring people out to sea. But that's something that you know. Well, all I mean, these phenomena do. But but isn't that kind of what the folkloric aspect of it was meant to prevent you from doing? Like because I feel like so much of folklore has a sort of moralizing, cautionary tale aspect to it. So isn't part of it that you are not supposed to follow either that path or that person into the woods in the same way you're not supposed to follow the fairies? Yeah, one hundred percent. I mean, and and that's where, you know, I, I think in, in uh, Thieves in the Night, I mentioned that there was a scholar that was talking about like, well, nobody really believed in this. These were, you know, ways to sort of be um, cautionary tales for, you know, young, young people to not go into these wild places where they might encounter very real dangers. But at the same time, I don't think if you look at the folklore of any of these situations, that doesn't really bear itself out. I mean, if that's the case, then why do you have old spinsters in Ireland still leaving out, you know, milk for the fairies? It just doesn't compute. Obviously, adults took these things very seriously as well. And yeah, it, wasn't, it wouldn't it wasn't be just, sustaining. Yeah. It wouldn't be sustaining if, it, like, folklore wouldn't last if it wasn't sustaining and um, self-perpetuating in some level. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I mean, it's it's the. I mean, how many adults do you know that? Sorry, spoiler alert, kids. How many adults do you know actually still believe in the objective reality of Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny? We don't. And that's sort of what this particular scholar, I wish I could recall his name off the top of my head, but that's what he was saying, is that these are just sort of that equivalent, and that just doesn't doesn't make any sense. There's got to be something that people are encountering objectively that even if it's not, you know, a wild man, there's got to be some sort of objective impetus or genesis for a lot of these different myths and legends and folklore. And we'll get back to our discussion about where the footprints end in a moment. Skillshare is an online learning community where you can find thousands of classes to inspire your creativity, explore new skills, and deepen your knowledge of existing skills. Because it's online learning, they have classes that'll fit your skill level, whatever it is, from beginner on up. And you can take the classes anytime because they're online. So you're a Skillshare member now, Allison, as am I. Mm-hmm. You've been taking some classes there. I know you took the design great stuff, how to make merch with Draplin class. 
I did. It was a very like DIY, old school kind of punk rock approach, but with very practical ways to get your items actually made, which is something that I think if you're just starting out trying to market your business, that you don't really have those tools. Like, how do I get a pin made? Or how do I prep these designs to actually give them to someone? And he gives really practical advice on how to get those things accomplished. That's awesome. Besides the Design Great Stuff class, you were looking at some classes on alternate photography? Yeah, I actually took one of the classes on alternate photography processes. So there's all kinds of classes there at Skillshare. Skillshare members get unlimited access to all these classes, thousands of classes on Skillshare. Hands-on projects from a community of millions. Skillshare is very affordable, especially when you compare it to in-person classes and workshops. An annual subscription to Skillshare is less than $10 a month. Explore your creativity and get two months of premium membership at Skillshare.com strange. That's two whole months of unlimited access to thousands of classes for free. Get started and join today. Go ahead and head over to Skillshare.com strange. That's two free months of unlimited access to thousands of classes at Skillshare.com strange. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Well, one thing I wanted to touch on, and I was kind of like flippantly talking to Tim about how I wanted to write a, a feminist Bigfoot book, which no one would ever read. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought uh, maybe we could touch on that a little bit. Um, well, you, the, what, to, to be fair, you know, we keep on saying wild men, but, you know, wild mm-hmm. women factor into this as well. Just a quick interjection there. In what capacity? I mean, as as the, the sort of... Um, you know, just because of the of the women in white who appear alongside these sightings, or as or literal feminine big feet. But, oh no! But, ex- yeah, explicit. I mean, they usually appear as ogresses, but these ogresses are described as you know devouring children and having you know large pendulous breasts, which appear in plenty of big reports, and uh, you know and being completely covered in hair. I mean, and if you extend this a little bit more, it's pretty much accepted by medieval scholars that the wild woman archetype is sort of one of the shames sharing that, sharing that same space as, as witches did. You know, they lived in the margins of society in the woods and they were, you know, a deterrent and they would sometimes abduct children. It sort of fits that same archetype. Which is, well, by the way, something, Allison, you said to me a long time ago when I was doing research for one of the Bigfoot books. You said, wild women will always be witches. Well, I mean, are they witches because there's like a negative connotation to that? Like witches aren't primarily youthful, sexual, attractive women, like women in white. I mean, yeah, historically, historically, that's that's the case. I mean, that the definition has certainly changed now into into, a you know, an archetype of female empowerment. But uh, in every culture throughout the world, it was it was never really that. I mean, you, you would have cunning men and women and you would have, you know fairy doctors and all these sorts of helpful magical practitioners but like when people said a witch they generally meant not not someone you want to hang out with 
point and we were talking about empowerment versus disempowerment and how so often it's these teenage girls or that have these sort of this supposed psychokinetic energy and to me it seems very disempowering because you're telling young women particularly that um, their burgeoning sexuality you know causes things to fly around the room and is this negative element that's just sort of lurking around them in the same way that when you take a woman in white and juxtapose her with a wild man you have this like constant fight between the good and the evil and the sexual and the non-sexual and I think that it's actually sort of disempowering. There's a lot of those moralizing messages. Wow. That's an interest. That, yeah, that's an interesting and insightful angle that I do not feel at all qualified <laughs> to speak about. <laughs> uh, but that's, I mean, that, it, it, it makes sense. Well, it's, it's, it's kind of not to veer too far, of course, but it's this idea that women need to seek some sort of external power source rather than actually calling upon the power in, inside themselves that you see uh, in that, I think. You guys talk a lot about, um, the similarities between poltergeist activity in the outdoors being the similar to Bigfoot phenomenon in the same way that someone might experience it within their own household. So I was wondering, um, you know, maybe we could speak to that on some level. In terms of poltergeist activity manifesting around young women or just in general? Well, just in general, but um, I mean, don't isn't the, the common notion that that's that it's usually I mean, they never come out and say it, right? That it's like some sort of hormonal thing that's bringing it on. But that's the assumption, like this time of extreme emotion or... People have documented and and charted when poltergeist activity tends to occur. And it is more often in uh, prepubescent and just prepubescent, like right before they hit puberty, girls. And it does pop up around uh, young men as well, you know, male children. They tend to get it earlier, if I remember correctly. The poltergeist activity will be more, you know, like late toddler age around boys. And this is just generally speaking, this isn't a hard and fast rule. It can appear, you know, to people of any age and so forth. But uh, well, that's I think interesting the- from like a Victorian aspect of it, because like that's the point in time when little boys would have been changed out of dresses and they would have reached a certain kind of proto manhood anywhere from between three and eight years old. Oh, isn't that interesting? You're talking about like the unbreached boys versus... Yeah. Mm -hmm. That is a really, really interesting idea that I've never considered. Well, and and even more interesting, too, is the fact that, you know, at least, I mean, there are multiple reasons for, you know, dressing young boys in dresses, but at least one of them that I've heard cited many times is that you wanted to sort of confuse the, the faithful because young boys were prized for changelings more than girls. So it's interesting that as soon as you, as soon as you uh, put them in, you know, young young boys clothing that that might be when it starts it's an interesting angle that i hadn't considered you know and another sort of wrinkle on this too this whole conversation about sex and poltergeist which i promise folks we'll come back to bigfoot but this is all kind of this big (laughs) soup all this big soup of stuff um you know your mileage of of spiritualism may may vary and there are plenty of you know well-known male mediums but when you think of sort of the quintessential spirit medium back in those days it was you know oftentimes a woman Mm-hmm. Which is, uh, I, I bring that in because the two places that you see poltergeist activity are in poltergeist infestations and seances. You know, the wrappings and the levitation. Yeah, that. all the Fox sisters, early spiritualists. Right, they, right. And all the way back to the Salem witch trials. I mean, basically, they just blamed all of the Salem witch trials on some teenage girls. 
Speaking of the Salem witch trials, did you know that Tichuba had a Bigfoot sighting? All right, bring it. I've well, never heard this story. More, more specifically, you you could say a little foot sighting, um, <laughs> a, hair, a hairy creature sighting. That's yeah, it's it's interesting because this also sort of comes in to play when you're talking about fairies. You know, people think that fairies are always short, which is a, a pretty good rule, but they can be of all shapes and sizes, and often fold in aspects of the wild man archetype. But uh, you know, a lot of these these sort of brownie variants that you see, which you know. The, Bogles and Pekamderlin and, and brownies and even goblins were described as short little simian hair-covered creatures. And, and Tipiba, who was, you know, the Caribbean slave who was at the center of the witch trials, saw what she described as a hairy thing with its face was hairy and it had a long nose and it would, walked around on two legs um, and was about three foot high. So, you know, and, and people do still see to this day, not only, you know, when people see in the forest something of that description they now assume in North America that, oh, it's a little foot, it's a juvenile Bigfoot. People have seen these things alongside um, larger Bigfoot. But, you know, if you unpack your assumptions, maybe, you know, maybe they're the same thing and one of them's just in, you know, big mode and one of them's <laughs> in tiny mode because, again, wild men and fairies just like witches, were also uh, inveterate uh, mimics and shapeshifters as well. And extending this to the spiritualism movement, we talk about manifestation of hairy creatures. Yeah, people don't really like to talk about that either. Isn't it funny how we wrote this book about high strangeness and Bigfoot and people didn't really like to talk about these things? Um, <laughs> yeah, hairy hands are one of those things that appear in numerous seances, and there are at least two examples that I can think of. of in one example specifically an actual what we would describe as a bigfoot and in another example the lighting was so dim that the uh, the witness who uh, whom i believe was uh stan gooch who was a paranormal writer described what looked like a neanderthal and he wasn't sure whether or not it was you know clad in furs or it was furry all, all over but it was a large furry man shape that manifested in the room oh yeah and like typically i would just think of sort of this like uh, vague ectoplasm is what i would think of as like your, your typical seance output I, I hadn't heard any of the stories about hairiness involved in it. I wouldn't say that. Well, that's sort of the problem that you run into some of this literature is people say hairy hands. Now, does that mean like a completely hairy hand or does that mean, you know, Andre the Giant's hand? I don't know. Yeah, or is um, it just a masculine <laughs> hand, whereas the person that's conducting the seance might be very feminine? And it's, again, this sort of dualistic idea of like the the conduit versus the, the reality. And then, you know, again, this sort of the, the vagueness of the time, but you know, when people describe something that's tall and, and covered in hair, you're like, okay, well that's, that's a little bit different than, than, you know, somebody who has hairy palms or something. Well, I, I do want to bring this more into the realm of Bigfoot and away from fairies and adolescent girls, which just seems like <laughs> maybe we should just bring this back to Bigfoot. I wanted to ask you guys about notable cases that had cases of Bigfoot sightings that would be more common knowledge that also have the hallmarks of what you call the high strangeness inherent in the case. Well, Tim, <laughs> this sounds like you're, you're, uh, you're Bellywick. Yeah. One of my favorite examples of this is in volume one and it is what is generally known as the ape Canyon sighting. And if you're not familiar with this, it's a story that's told in almost every like, general Bigfoot book that's a, a survey of the Bigfoot phenomenon. They will tell the story about these miners who were in the mountains in Washington State, and 
they encountered a Bigfoot creature and they shot at it during the day. And that night, a group of creatures came back and attacked their cabin. Very harrowing tale and varies from the original article in which they were saying there were stones were thrown and then it got exaggerated over time and some accounts have boulders being thrown and you know crushing the cabin and so forth uh, the creatures lifting up the cabin you know actually trying to flip it over and so forth so these accounts vary but the the story is basically the same at least that's the story we were told However, in the course of researching this book, Josh came upon Fred Beck's story. Now, Fred Beck was one of the miners who was at Ape Canyon, and he wrote this in the 1960s, looking back on the incident. So the Ape Canyon incident happened in the 1920s. So he's looking back on this incident in the 1960s, and he wrote this book with his son describing the incident. Fred Beck had a quote, which I will read, which kind of gives away the entire nature of the Ape Canyon incident. And this is, again, from Fred Beck. He was one of the miners that that was there. And he says, First of all, I will say that they are not entirely of this world. By they, he's talking about Bigfoot. I know the reaction we experienced as these beings attacked our cabin impressed many with the concept of great ape-like men dwelling in the mountains. And I can say that we genuinely fought and were quite fearful, and we were glad to get out of the mountains. But I was, for one, always conscious that we were dealing with supernatural beings, and I know the other members of the party felt the same. So Fred Beck himself says these were supernatural creatures, these weren't natural creatures. And he goes on to tell the story of Ape Canyon, which begins with these miners encountering what they described as a giant Native American spirit, which told them to follow a white arrow, into the wilderness. So they're following something in the sky. Is this, is this a UFO? What is this? You know, I don't know, but that's what they say. As they're following this arrow, they encounter another spirit. And they do not describe the spirit's appearance, but it was a woman named Vander White. And they described her as a kindly spirit, and she made such an impression on them that they actually named their gold mine the Vander White Mine. And uh, they follow this arrow then into the wilderness. It leads them to this mine. It's a, apparently a fruitful, uh, productive gold mine. But in the course of working this mine, they start hearing strange sounds from underneath the ground, so, like big machinery sounds and humming. And they start finding footprints. But they were finding things like two footprints in the middle of an acre-wide sandbar. So along the river. So there's this acre of, of, of sandbar, soft sandbar, and two footprints in the middle of it. And they couldn't figure out how these two footprints got there. There's no, no coming or going, just two big human-like footprints. And eventually they started seeing creatures around. Now, the story as it, that it's told did happen, uh, according to Fred. They, they did shoot at one. The creatures did come back and attack the cabin that night. And they left. But all of the strangeness has been what I call weirdwashed out of the story to present it as if it sounds the most like these just a gorillas, you know, some kind of wild gorilla or relic hominid attacking these men in the wilderness and all these Bigfoot books. But if you read Fred Beck's own account, all of this other strangeness is folded into it including things like a ports. Uh, he had a pencil appear in his hand. He said he, he knew the pencil was at his house I think it was like 50 miles away or something. His house was. He needed a pencil 
at some point a pencil appeared in his hand. So you're having these weird, completely supernatural incidents, which the Bigfoot community has completely edited out of the story because it doesn't fit the agreed-upon idea that these are just natural apes. So all of this weirdness is completely edited out, and I feel it's completely, completely wrong. I mean, I think it's if you're going to believe somebody when they say they saw a giant ape man in the woods... You also have to believe them when they say they, there was weird sounds and, and footprints that disappeared and all this other strange stuff that uh, Fred Beck himself reported. I think, Josh, you came upon a quote from mm-hmm. which one, one of the researchers was it? The, the sort of uh, big names in Bigfootery? I'm not sure of the quote you're specifying, but I would imagine that was probably DeHendon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was, was said, famously antagonistic against this sort of thing. Basically said that, that Fred Beck was crazy, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, I think that he got he got silly in his old age or something like that. It was either him or John Green, not to, to besmirch anybody unnecessarily. Um, but you know, there, there are there are two other additional wrinkles um, from the Ape Canyon case too. Um, one of which is also in Beck's account, which was the the a large white arrow in the sky. Did you mention that? I did. That's the, okay. The yeah, arrow so they followed to the to the mine. Yeah, the the large white arrow, and also something that I found that I don't know if anybody's connected this to the Ape Canyon incident, but it's got to be describing that there's a 1967 article from October in the Oregonian newspaper that talks about a 1924 uh, incident involving miners near Kelso, Washington that had seen apes that threw stones at the cabin in the Mount St. Helens area. And uh, they found giant footprints around the cabin, but all of the right foot. Yes. The search was called. <laughs> yeah. So we have this additional wrinkle, just like just one footed Bigfoot. Now, of course the article dismisses this as a hoax, which is, you know, understandable but again it's another just another little extra anomaly to the eight canyon case that just is not ever really addressed and i think tim probably thinks this is tim probably thinks this is more intentional than i do um i think it might just be people being unaware or something but i I think in this case specifically i do think in other cases people deliberately leave out uh, all the weird stuff I do love the idea of the just half of the footprints. Uh, I mean, I think that's a, um, a wonderful representation of the book in general and that it's, it's this idea that he's both half here, half physically present and half not. Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, I, I know you guys have talked a lot about trying to hold two opposing thoughts at the same time. And there's no more of a great, um, I think, symbolic uh, <laughs> well put, yeah, but, yeah. Then, um, then having just one footprint there. <laughs> no, absolutely, and this is something people are going to look in. Where do they talk about this? That's in the the trackways and the anomalous trackways are in volume two, and there is an entire tradition of of monopods throughout myth and legend throughout uh, throughout the world, and the 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 trackways of one single foot. I wouldn't say I had to look pretty hard for them. So they're not exactly common, but uh, they, they do occur from time to time as well. And, and between what you said, that being a nice metaphor, I think the other nice metaphor was um, something that Tim discovered in the Anne Slate and Al Berry book, Bigfoot, which is out of print. But it's really, as, as Tim has described before, sort of the progenitor book for this or the, or the grandfather book of this. And uh, it was a zoologist from the Baltimore Zoo, right, Tim? Yes. That yep. said this? Yeah. I can't remember the exact quote. Maybe you can help me out on that. Uh, well, again, it was not the exact quote, but he was shown some of the footprints that were appearing in the area of you know Pennsylvania and Maryland in the 1970s, and many of these were three-toed footprints. And we can talk about how that doesn't make sense as far as primates, if you'd like, but 
in any case, the zoologist is looking at these casts of these three-toed footprints, and he had this wonderful quote, which I'm sure he meant as a joke, but it was very, very uh, prescient, I think, as far as you know the things we're talking about. And he, he said, when looking at these casts, he says, it's almost like they forgot to form the rest of the foot. Like, whatever it was manifested and forgot to form the rest of the foot. Like, it only formed part of the foot. So, again, this is wonderful sort of quote that talks about this phenomena not being wholly here, in a sense. And if, if you look to compare that to, um, for example, the Jinn tradition of the Middle East, which you can vaguely, loosely describe as sort of Middle Eastern fairy analogs, it was always said that the jinn would, you know, imitate things perfectly except for one detail. And what what better detail to fake than, or what better detail to overlook, I guess, than than the feet? Like nobody's going to be looking at my feet. I'm just <laughs> going to throw something together. Three toes, yeah, sure, whatever, it's fine. Well, there isn't there always there. This, there's always some sort of ironic twist, whether it be with gifting or you know, there's always or, or intent. There's always some slight snafu that sends you on a path that was different from the one that you initially intended. Yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, you just spoke about to this the other night. Uh, on, I said the other night. I don't know when you recorded again the last episode of Where Did the Road Go. Soraya should pay me for all these plugs. <laughs> um, but uh, I think you, Tim, was was saying how hard it was to write a straightforward linear paranormal book, unless you're dealing with a specific case. Like you're always branching out into these other these other points of comparison. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's. It's. Uh, in fact, I'm. I'm writing my chapter for volume two. That's the case study that I'm covering and I I wrote specifically that point today it's it's not a line it's a spider web and a very tangled spider web and you have to jump back and forth in ways it's very very difficult to write about this stuff because of that because something will happen and then 12 more things will happen and then something else will happen that's kind of connected to the first thing but only through symbolism and you kind of have to make this all work together it's, it's very very difficult to write about you know, it just occurred to me, Tim, is that in my case study for volume two, I opened it with, with the Gordian knot metaphor, which is basically the exact same thing that we're describing here. <laughs> to get to your point, Alan, back to your point, yes, there's always something that seems to be off in some way. There's always something, there's always a hitch. There's always something not quite right. Evidence always seems to disappear one way or another or be somehow inconclusive. There's always a hitch. There's always a, a problem. It's, it's very, very interesting. See, I'm going to push. I'm going to push back against that a little bit, Tim. Sorry, no, sorry to interrupt, Allison. But like, no, no, go ahead. It, this is something that we run into a lot, though, is that the people who do have these like roadside crossings sightings, or a hunter who sees like a Bigfoot walking through the forest and then goes behind a copse of trees or something, there's not always a weird. There's not always a weird um, aspect in that, and I think that's the reason that you see those people lining up in the uh, the flesh and blood hypothesis camp more than the weird camp whereas if you look at people who have a longitudinal experience such as habituators or people who have multiple experiences then they tend to lean start start to lean or at least or at least willfully ignore um you know the uh other hypotheses i would argue back that the thing that's off the thing that's not quite right the thing the, the problem is manifest in those cases in the number of people that will never believe those hunters or those people that see that roadside crossing Fair enough. The uh, the defense rests, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Are there um, examples of this in like, you know, for someone like me who only knows a few, like I don't know all of the little third and fourth tier Bigfoot cases, but, you know, just even just like in the Patty case, is there, are there notable things that happened around that time in that area? 
even like a meteor shower or something, anything that just was a little, can you think of something specific in that area or something else that might've happened to the, and I can't remember, I'm sorry. I can't remember the men who saw him. It's, it's uh, Patterson and Gimlin. Patterson Gimlin. I, I write about this in volume two in a chapter on disappearing evidence. And it's one of my favorite examples because there's this beautiful video which shows something. I think we can all agree it shows something walk across the frame, whether it's a, mm-hmm. a man in a suit or a creature. It shows something upright walking across the frame. You can get experts to line up on both sides as to it being a hoax, as it to being a real creature, and they have their various reasons. And these everyone from special effects experts to you know people who research primate locomotion and so forth and as many people as you can get to line up on the side that's a hoax, you can get you know experts to line up on the other side. So they can't agree on that. There's a fellow named Bob Hieronymus who came forward and said, I was the guy in the suit. And I, I think this is just this wonderful thing. So he says he's the guy in the suit. He's, he's unable to produce the suit. So the one thing that could, for once and for all, determine whether this this film shows something real or fake cannot be produced. It's lost. It's gone. The, the evidence, even though it's not, you know, Bigfoot evidence, if, if it's true that there was a suit and he was the guy in it, this evidence cannot be produced. It's gone. It's missing. He said it was like in his mom's garage or something. And then it, it disappeared or it was in a trunk of a car and, and it, you know, got lost somehow. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at this point that it's gone. If there ever was a suit, the film itself, uh, which would be very valuable. I believe if we had the original film canister, they said they could determine what speed it was filmed at. And then they could, um, from the speed of the film, they could determine the the size of the creature, which would be very, very valuable information and, and something they don't, you know, would basically they don't know because they don't know what speed the, it was filmed at, if it was a normal human size thing or it's something, you know, considerably larger, something seven foot tall, or at least, you know, not outside the realm of human height, but but something that would be, you know, very, very rare for a human to be that tall. So if we had the original film canister, we could determine also likely whether this thing was a hoax or not. And the original film is missing. Now, some people say it's in some lawyer's office or it's in some film archive somewhere. But again, it doesn't matter. You can't produce it. No one, no one can produce the original films. If you can't produce it, it might as well be gone. So here we have this, you know, perhaps the best evidence, visual evidence anyway, of Bigfoot ever collected. And the film's gone a film that's worth millions upon millions of dollars. The film is gone. And this suit, which, you know, this guy, if he had this suit, he could auction it on eBay and get easily <laughs> five, $10 million for it. This suit is gone. So the evidence for either side of this, whether it's a hoax or real, is completely gone. It's so emblematic of the Bigfoot phenomenon that it's just, it's, it's left as this, question mark just floating in the air i love the symbolism of the patterson giblin film for that and i would argue that that like it's just baked into these phenomena that sort of self-negating let's cast doubt on ourselves so that no one knows if we're ever around there's a great quote that i can never i cite it so often i should just look it up and put it on a post-it note or something but there's a great quote from the ufo literature about a contactee or abductee who is told by the visitors he says we want you to believe in us but not too much (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, I mean, that not that kind of like the perfect thing about that film is that, A, it's an introduction to, for many of us of this, you know, of our generation or, or many of us just culturally into the Bigfoot phenomenon. So in some ways, I feel like it doesn't matter whether it's real or not. It perpetuates the, the Bigfoot phenomenon without whether it's real or not. Yes. And I would go a step further, too, and say that, like, I think that most of these paranormal topics it's not about the world knowing it's about you knowing you know it's about Mm -hmm. you it's about you being convinced or you having that experience and sort of forging your own path and being able to say i don't know what the rest of the world thinks but this happened to me and i think maybe that might be the reason that actual hard proof is always so elusive in these topics and actually i think that's what's the most compelling for me i I mean it's not um a, a big secret that i'm pretty skeptical of a lot of things that we talk about on strange familiars but what really changed my mind as to whether other people were seeing things or just making up something for attention or just um, having a very convenient response to something that might be, have a scientific origin was when someone came up to Tim and started talking about something that he had seen. And there was this just absolute palpable fear and anxiety that just to me couldn't be faked in the way that somebody can say oh yes yeah i ran across the road and i only caught a glimpse of it and it was hairy and this was a this was an entirely different experience and to me that's what i think changed my mind from no one's seeing a relic hominid in the woods to people are seeing something i don't know what it is i don't know if it's quote-unquote real but people are seeing something I think that's fair skepticism, though. I think that's, you know, that's very fair to say, well, they're, they're seeing something, you know, if that's all the further you get, I'm happy with that. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, and in some ways, it's just um, making that that leap to, to know that your experiences does not mirror everyone else's experience. It's just sort of leaving yourself open to say, like, not every person experiences the same thing. So it opens things up and closes things equally, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally get that. And, uh, you know, one of my favorite recent Bigfoot sightings was the the fellow that was Gage, who was on our episode called The Beast, when he described seeing that creature in the woods with two of his friends when they were kids. They were like, I think he said they were like nine years old. He saw a white creature step down out of a tree. One of his friends saw nothing. And he attributed it to that kid being a coward and not looking up. But I think it's very interesting that one kid sees nothing. And then the, his other friend, the third kid, you know, later in life, he talks to him and asks him about it. He sees a black creature step out of the tree. So, you know, they both agree a big hairy creature step out of a tree. But as to what it looked like and its intention, they both got different feeling from it, by the way. The kid who saw the, the white creature thought it was just kind of warning them out of the woods and protecting them in a sense. And the one who saw the black creature thought it was was completely evil, but these two, the two that saw it, cannot agree on what it looked like. Only what it was, which I find mm. just beautiful. It's just, again, it's this beautiful metaphor for this phenomena. And that shows up in you know it doesn't get talked about a lot, but that shows up in UFO sightings too, where you'll have a group of five people and three will see something in the sky and two won't, or they'll disagree on on you know colored lights, the color of lights rather, and. Uh, you know, of course, the nuts and bolts UFO researcher will either omit that or will toss the case aside because they're like, well, they didn't say anything. Their stories didn't match. But I mean, you know, it's it, it, it never questions the idea that we might be bringing something to the table, as, as my friend Greg Bishop would say. It happened um, to John and I recently at, at Site 7 where he's 
on his knees reaching out trying to grab what he said was a ping pong ball sized light. And I saw what looked like a little LED, like a little pin light, like, you know, just, just a pinpoint of light. You know, we, we both agreed there was a light there, but what it looked like exactly, you know, we apparently saw two different things. Did you agree on colors for that or? Yeah. Yeah. On, on that one for sure. Yeah. We both, it was white, but uh, yeah, it was the size of it. And I was right next to him. I wasn't, you know, like 20, 30 yards away. I was standing right next to him. And uh, it seems like we both saw something different, but both saw a light. Which, I mean, I, I think that this hints at the role of altered states of consciousness in Bigfoot stories, which I actually ended up adding the gauge story uh, to that altered states chapter that I have in volume two. I don't think anybody has really ever talked about the possibility of altered states of consciousness being involved in the Bigfoot phenomena. It's very much in vogue in fairy research and in UFO research, but nobody, I don't think has really ever talked about that. Um, so it's something else to, to look forward to. Uh, I think that, that story with Gage, when I heard that, I was like, Oh, that's, that's awesome. That's, you know, most people, again, most people would be like, Oh, it means that they're fabricating their story and their story's falling apart, you know, decades later. But I don't think that's, doesn't sound like the case to me. No. Oh, is that a story of someone who admits to be being under the influence of something during the time that they saw Bigfoot? Or no, just the idea that that yeah. it's perception that oh, okay. that defines the experience. Yeah. Though we do have some in the Al Berry book, aren't there some stories of people being hypnotically regressed? And the, there, are, yeah, there are a couple of those. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and uh, realizing that they had some time with Bigfoot uh, that that they didn't consciously remember. Yeah, a couple of hypnotic regression uh, instances. Um, you know, something that we talk about that is also you know part and parcel with this is is missing time. People have drawn conclusions between well, you know, in Fairyland you'd go in for what felt like three days and you were in there for three years, or you know, it's missing time is obviously a trope in UFO lore where people say it should have only taken me forty minutes to get home and it took me three hours. Um, and but but missing time is something that we talk about in Volume One. That's something that occurs more often than I thought uh, in Bigfoot encounters as well. The most famous and most uh, and best example that I, I always think of is Wes Germer's experience, his his Sasquatch sighting in the head with his brother, where he was like, it felt like it was 40 minutes, but we got home and there was three hours later. And famously, the, uh, <laughs> the co-host that he had on the time, uh, very much in the flesh and blood hypothesis camp, said, well, when you're under duress, uh, time seems like it speeds up, which clinically in clinical settings that the perception of time slows down absolutely. in high stress situations. That's, that's not even open for debate. Yeah, absolutely. It does. But what about in like a, you guys talk about um, sleep paralysis. What about in sleep situations or dreams? You know, like so often people say, well, I just nodded off for you know a minute and a half. And oh. I had this dream that took place over the course of days. And yeah, thank you for that because <laughs> that's actually where I was originally going. And I sort of lost the plot there. That's something that's that's you know in dreams, but also in in these psychedelic experiences. We talk to anybody who's had a DMT experience, and they literally feel like they've been there for lived another thousand, life, a thousand years. I was in a band with a guy who was like, he was a really funny cat. He was he looked like a muppet, and he was like he was like, yeah, man, I, I smoked DMT, and, and and I felt like I was away for years, but I knew it had to be only a couple minutes because the same episode of Star Trek: The Next Generation was on. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, this this time dilation thing is a thread that runs through fairy lore and uh, UFO lore and these trip reports that people have on all sorts of substances and kind of rears its head a little bit more often than people think in Bigfoot sightings. 
I mean, could the, some of the experiences that people are having um, in the woods, you know, maybe at a time of exhaustion from just that hyper focus, either in hunting or in hiking where you might be exhausted, do you think that might be a contributing factor? Or do you think that this is like, I mean, because some people don't be seem to be affected on like a, like a spiritual level by it. They might be frightened, but and might not think it's necessarily physical, but they don't seem to have like a, a spiritual reaction to it. I think it's a valid criticism. But again, if, I, if I'm, generally speaking, it comes back to that, the dilation thing. If, if I'm exhausted, I tend to think that time, I tend to think that, you know, minutes feel like hours and, and not vice versa. Um, Unless you fall asleep in some measure. Right. Yeah. And also true. I mean, yeah, I think at least some of us have had some of these dreams that, like you said, feel like they take forever. There's even some people who are really into, into dream research, which is something that's never really, um, you know, never really lit my candle, so to speak. But uh, some people who claim to have had dreams or been in comas where they literally like live like decades of lives with people. And they have a family, and then they come out of the coma, and they're like, "But my family, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Oh, you guys are cool too, but like my other family, what about them?" Yeah, there's it's that episode of Adventure Time where he goes into the pillow fort. Yep, yeah. <laughs> Which is uh, there's a video of someone who does salvia on YouTube. At least there used to be. I don't know if it's still there. And it's you know this guy's whole salvia trip is filmed, and he's he takes one of these like super concentrate you know uh, salvia. Salvia is a very powerful hallucinogenic, and they used to sell it in super concentrated forms, which you could smoke, and it would give like you over like over the counter at gas stations and stuff. Right? Yeah. It was crazy. I remember yeah. those days. Yeah, and you'd have an insane trip that lasts about you know ten minutes or so. Uh, so it's, it's you know it's not like an all night thing like acid. You know this guy you know smokes and his friends filming it, and he just you know he just zones out and goes somewhere else, and he's he's coming out of it, and he's just like well, you don't you don't understand. I had a family and you can tell it's, it's, it's just like, he's sad. Like whatever happened to him, wherever he went, he had a whole other life. It was, I, I think I, if, if I think you might be talking about, there's a video clip of, I believe it's Duncan Trussell. Who's a comedian. And he's has the, uh, he's a showrunner on the, the midnight gospel series on Netflix and a frequent Joe Rogan podcast uh, interviewee. And I think that he, he was filmed with a Salvia trip that he had. And he was, he described like living an entire life as this like aquatic humanoid. <laughs> I, I'm also putting in mind, this is again, Allison, please, please rein us in and bring us back to Bigfoot. <laughs> but I've got to say this because I remember, I remember hearing several like really bad Salvia trips where people was like, people were like, I spent four years as a down comforter or like, or like, <laughs> I, or like I, I spent a week as a suitcase underneath a staircase, a staircase. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have uh, friends who are, who are very earnest drug takers who will not go near it after touching it once. So yeah, it's uh, something that's not to be, not to be played with. If you have a puppy, you may need help with things like potty training, fear and nervousness, barking, chewing on furniture or shoes, crate training, leash training, hyperactivity issues with the puppy. For all these issues and more, you can turn to 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy. You can find them at sithappens.us. Look at the top of the page for the 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy link. 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy 
teaches a relationship-based approach to helping you and your dog become perfect for each other. They have lots of online sources, video lessons, a secret Facebook group where you can interact with other puppy owners, (laughs) as well as the 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy staff. There are one-on-one options available as well. Let 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy help you understand how your dog thinks and apply proactive training methods. They'll teach you how to train your puppy, but also they'll teach you what not to do, which is very important as well. Absolutely. Again, find 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy at sithappens.us. Look for the link at the top of the page. So we'll continue on the next episode with the rest of our talk with Josh, Where the Footprints End, in honor of Josh. Yeah, I've chosen some fairy children. For the photo of the week. Josh is somewhat opposed to that sort of uh, gentle Victorian fairy. Well, he needs to get over it because... (laughs) (laughs) This is a real photo postcard. You got a guess on, on the date, roughly? It's actually pretty early because you can see it's like a silver gelatin. Oh, wow, yeah. Real photo postcard. It's French. So 1900 to the 19-teens sometime, probably, for the date on this. Yeah. It's a beautiful photo of these two children dressed as fairies, though. They're in sort of, like, diaphanous gowns and with painted-on fairy wings and standing next to a fountain. Really, really nice picture. You can find an image of this in the show notes for this episode at strangefamiliars.com if you click on the image it should take you right to our etsy shop where you can purchase this beautiful real photo postcard hand tinted of some fairy children so i have to say you did incredibly well you really held your own in the bigfoot conversation there is that just information absorbed through osmosis of being around me absolutely (laughs) i felt badly that i um stumbled over things that i should know that are like canon Patterson Gimlet, I like it's, just just blanked on it, but yeah, you know, I do that sometimes too with things that are. Oh, it's okay. Yeah, whenever I'm on Where Did the Road Go with the roundtables, there's people in there that can list every like UFO sighting by date and all this. I just do not have that information at all. I'm kind of left in the dust by this guy's uh, knowledge on that stuff. Besides the photo of the week, you can find copies of Where the Footprints End in our Etsy shop. You can find that link in the show notes as well. Those copies will be signed by me, not by both Josh and I, unfortunately. He's in Georgia, I'm in Pennsylvania. I also just restocked the Strange Familiars t-shirts in our Etsy shop if you're looking for the classic Awoken Tree logo shirt. We have all sizes, small through 3X in stock right now at our Etsy shop, as well as past photos of the week, original artwork from me, and a lot more. It's Etsy shop name Lost Grave, one word, or you can find the links in the show notes, like I said. We have a really cool on-site episode that we will be recording this week. You probably won't hear it for a couple weeks because we have part two of Where the Footprints End next week, but something to look forward to. I think there's going to be a lot of natural reverb. It's going to sound really good. (laughs) Little hint from Allison (laughs) on where we might be going for that. So a lot more coming up on Strange Familiars. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back soon with more. If 
you like what we do, if you want to hear more Strange Familiars and help us create the show, you can become a patron at Patreon. It's patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. $3 a month gets you those extra episodes and other content. But there are all different levels there. You can check it out. Go to patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. And of course, we want to thank our patrons for helping us make Strange Familiars. We could not make the show without you. So thank you very much, patrons. If you want to help and you don't like the idea of a monthly subscription like Patreon, you can go to strangefamiliars.com. Look in the show notes under every episode. You'll find a paypal.me link where you can make a one-time donation. Everyone can help by sharing the show on social media, by liking and subscribing wherever you're listening, and by leaving us those nice five-star reviews, which helps get the show in front of new potential listeners. Strange Familiars is a production of Dark Holler Arts. Music, books, art, podcasts, and more. DarkHollerArts.com Intro and background music is by Stone Breath. Go to StoneBreath.Bandcamp.com for more. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash strangefamiliars, where you can join the Strange Familiars gathering group. And we are on Instagram, at strangefamiliars.
flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.